Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. I uh, hope you enjoyed a couple of weeks ago when we were live from Israel. And over the past couple of weeks, I know we've, we've missed a week or two, but one of the things that we were doing is filming video in Israel for an upcoming series at So We Speak. So I wanted to take a moment and just introduce that a little bit on the podcast, and we'll probably see it here, what do you think, a month or six weeks? Yeah, I think it uh, shouldn't take too long to get it ready for video and put it out as a series. Looking forward to it. Yeah, we had a great trip. Um, big group of people. Obviously, you guys that listen got to meet our Israeli guide, Yehuda. He, he really makes the trip incredible. And uh, one of the things I love is when you go to Israel and you see the sites, you get a feel for the country, you also get to meet people and talk about the modern state of Israel. So one of the things that I took away from, from the trip was not just an appreciation for the ancient land of Israel, but an appreciation for the modern land of Israel, the things that they've been through, the ways that uh, they've had to fight for their existence for the last 60 years, and then all the ways that they interface with the United States. They're kind of a Western nation situated in the middle of a very non-Western region right. in the world. Exactly. So... Getting back, you know, one of the things that had been brewing in the UK for the last several months with Jeremy Corbyn and the Labor Party, and then now one of the things that's going on in the United States is almost a little bit of a rise in anti-Semitism. And we're going to discuss whether we think that this really is a rise in anti-Semitism, but I wanted to take a moment and reflect on it, not because we wanted to be politically reactive per se, but a lot because we just were immersed in that environment in Israel. Come back and you hear these comments almost in a new light uh, from from our experience. Because I, I, for one, would say just being in America, there is something to be said for latent anti-Semitism that doesn't catch your ear. Then if you go to Israel and you experience the people over there, you see the land, you start talking about it, you hear some things that they say about the perception of Jews across the world and, and in the Middle East especially, you, your ears perk up when people start talking about the Jews when you get back. I agree. I think uh, when you're talking to the Jews there, in our experience, and I realize there are various groups there from the ultra-Orthodox to the secular Jews, but you really see a common desire for peace I can't help but think that also is on the other side of the equation to some extent. However, it seems that the forces controlling the Middle East right now are ones that are having a hard time finding a way to peace. Yeah, I mean, certainly history would bear that out. Why why don't we kick off just by talking a little bit about the Middle East? Give us, if you would, maybe a five to ten minute intro to how we see the Middle East now. So the, the Middle East really has been reshaped in the last 60 or 70 years. Give us some big stones in the ground as to how we got to where we are in the Middle East. That's a great point. Let me go back to uh, the time period for basically uh, World War I is a great place to start because before World War I, that part of the world, what we now call Israel, was controlled by the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was a Muslim empire headquartered in Turkey, and it had been around for hundreds of years, been a very successful empire as empires go. The land of Israel, or Palestine, whichever name you want to use for that, the name, uh, that land had people living in it, but it was not a political entity. In other words, there was not a region or a state or certainly not a nation, that area was pretty much under Ottoman control, but it's just pretty much people living there. It wasn't like Egypt as a nation. So this area had some Jewish people, but a lot of Arab people from various places living in this land. In World War I, you see the Balfour Declaration coming from the foreign minister of Great Britain, who said that Great Britain's policy would be to establish a homeland for the Jewish people. 
Along at this time, the rise of Zionism. Zionism was a political movement by certain Jews who wanted to get a land, their ancestral land, given back to them as a political entity. From World War I to World War II, you saw a lot of Jews begin to come back to that area, but they were kind of on their own. Some of them were able to buy land from some of the sheikhs that controlled the area of Palestine. It was very tribal at that time. And they Mm -hmm. would set up, uh, you know, little outposts and uh, kibbutzes, these communal living places to try to establish a settlement there. But there was no serious settlement of that land. World War II changed the landscape. After World War II, when the entire world realized what had happened in Nazi Germany, And as they conquered areas in Europe, they began to exterminate the Jewish people, along with a few other groups of people. But the estimate is about 6 million Jews were killed. That Holocaust was, it shocked the world. It completely shocked the world because it almost wiped out Jewry in the world. Mm -hmm. There was a great sentiment at that time for the idea of a Jewish homeland, a place that Jews could go Israel, of course, being the choice, the land, some portion of the land of Israel being the choice. And so after World War II, Harry Truman, against the advice of many of his advisors, supported the establishment of a Jewish homeland. So what was established at that time was a Jewish homeland that basically had half of Jerusalem and a narrow strip along the coast of what we now call Israel. Well, the UN Declaration establishing the State of Israel in 1947 went into effect in 1948, in May of 1948. The day after it went into effect, five Arab armies invaded the new nation of Israel to try to push the Jews into the sea. Remarkably, miraculously, the Jews were able to hold on and they secured their independence in that war in 1948. They call it the War of Independence. So from 1948 on, there was very uneasy peace. If you can imagine being a Jew in that time, you're living in a country that's maybe 11 miles wide at its narrowest. You're living on Mm -hmm. one side of the city of Jerusalem and the other side is controlled by Jordan. And so the Jewish settlers, as they came back to that ancestral homeland, had a very hard way to go. And they were also constantly under attack in the north from the Syrians who were sitting up on the Golan Heights and whose snipers and uh, artillery would bomb them from clashes in Jerusalem itself between the Jordanians, and then, of course, in the south from the Egyptian Muslims. So Israel had a hard way to go, and so they had some fighting during that time. But the Arab world was kind of shocked that they were defeated in 1948, frankly, because they should not have been. They had modern armies. Israel didn't have an army. And so they kind of nursed that wound until 1967, 19 years later, the Arab countries were prepared to make another invasion, another push into Israel to push the Jews into the sea. That was their stated objective, was to destroy the state of Israel. Well, the Jews found out about this and could see uh, what was happening. And so two days before the attack was planned, the Jews made a preemptive strike and they caught the Syrian and Egyptian air forces on the ground, and they destroyed much of those forces. They began to push into what we now call the West Bank, and they began to push into the Golan Heights, and they began to push into the area near Egypt called the Suez. They were looking for living space for security. We call that the Six-Day War because they were very successful in conquering a great deal of territory. Now, one reason we need to talk about that is that the Jews did strike first. And so today, when you hear people wanting Israel to honor their international commitments, 
and to give back occupied territory, what they're talking about is the gains that Israel made in that 67 war, those folks mm-hmm. see as, as uh, not legitimate because they struck first. Of course, Israel and her supporters would say there was no way Israel could withstand a combined attack from all their neighbors. And so they did indeed strike two days before the attack was planned. I think that's important to see why, whether you agree with it or not, why you can see there's an argument. Because sometimes it seems like, why is there actually an argument here? Have you ever encountered that? You know, I think one of the trends in the American media especially is that the the Jews are on other people's land. And some of that, I think, comes from, from that war. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you strike first and you take land that at least immediately previous to that belonged to somebody else, right? then I, I, I think the argument runs the same way as the people who would, I, I would say, rightfully see Russia as needing to return Crimea to Ukraine. Right. And Russia then saying, well, no, actually, it was our land. And then it was given to Ukraine, so we were just taking it back. That's how a lot of people frame up the Jewish-Palestinian dispute, and I'm not sure I, I'm not sure that's an adequate comparison. I would agree with that. From my perspective as a historian, I would see it differently in Israel's case for this reason. During the 1967 war, Moshe Dayan spoke about being within 30 miles of Damascus, Syria, and having so defeated the Egyptian army that their path to Cairo was open. But the Israeli army, and this is not going to be popular if you don't like the Israelis, but this is just a matter of historical record, and that is they stopped because they did not have ambitions to conquer their neighbors. They simply wanted a defensive buffer where they could be safe this would have been the second time they would have been attacked by all their neighbors, and they were smart enough to realize that their land as they had it was indefensible. They could not defend themselves. So they weren't imperialistic in the sense that they wanted to conquer other people. But after that war, six years later, Anwar Sadat, who's probably one of the greatest Egyptian leaders, certainly Henry Kissinger, who was our Secretary of State at the time, believed so, Anwar Sadat began a war again in 1973 called the Yom Kippur War. And the Mm -hmm. purpose of this war, it was a simultaneous attack from the south into the Suez by Egypt and in the north into the Golan Heights by Syria, and it caught Israel completely by surprise. They began the war on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year for Jews, when people were at home, They weren't allowed to listen to TV or radio, and so it was very successful at first. Well, Israel began to fight back, of course, and they were able to push the Syrians out of the Golan Heights. The Egyptians, however, and this is the brilliance of Sadat, moved into the Suez and then stopped. What Anwar Sadat was trying to do was restore Arab pride, and he successfully did so. Eventually, Israel, through negotiation, gave the Suez back to Egypt, kept the Golan Heights to protect itself from Syria, and began to work on some solution in the West Bank. And so Anwar Mm -hmm. Sadat made it possible for today, Egypt, and then Jordan after them, uh, had a peace treaty with Israel. There is not conflict between Egypt, Jordan, and Israel today. And so I credit Anwar Sadat with visionary leadership looking for peace for his people, but a peace with dignity. Today, Mm -hmm. there's a push for Israel to give the Golan Heights back to Syria, which I believe they never will do because it makes their land uh, impossible to defend against Syrian aggression. The West Bank, it appears to me that Israelis, they're certainly ultra-Orthodox that want all the Palestinians out of there and begin to settle it. But the average Israeli on the street seems to me to be open to some kind of two-state solution. Uh, we just don't seem to be able to get there. But I hope that that little roadmap of history helps us understand how we got where we are and why the two camps think what they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's helpful to get that background because so much of the argument between 
Israel and Palestine, they're the Palestinians is an argument over, well, whose land is it? Mm-hmm. And both of them are using that argument. The, the truth of the matter is, obviously, if you believe uh, really anything about history, the Jews have been there a really long time. Right. Uh, and, and that's regardless of whether you, you believe everything in the Old Testament or not. The Jews have been there a really long time, but the fact of the matter is in recent history, nobody really was living there permanently up until uh, close to 100 years ago. Yeah, it really, uh, even when there were, quote, Palestinians there, and you have to be a little careful with that label, because it makes it sound like these are a group of people who were a political reality, like Oklahomans people who felt a kinship to one another because they were a political entity called the state of Oklahoma. That really Mm -hmm. didn't exist. Now, having said that, in 1947, there were people who were displaced from their land. So I'm not trying to be one-sided in this, but I do think you hear a lot of very historically inaccurate things being said, particularly about the Palestinian and the, quote, Palestinian state. There has never been a Palestinian state. But I do think yeah. that there's support to establish a Palestinian state and a and a way to live in peace. You know, one question right. turning a little bit from the history to to really more modern times, I'd ask you, it seems to me like there has been a traditional bond uh, in recent times, I'm not talking ancient times. I know that Christians persecuted Jews. I know that Jews persecuted Christians. But let's keep this in relatively modern times. It seems like there's been an affinity between Christians and Jews. Would you agree with that? It does seem like that. And I think even beyond that, part of this conversation is a traditional affinity between Christians and the nation of Israel. Mm-hmm. And I want to dive into a little bit as to why that might be. So first of all, I think one of the things that we have to be aware of is most of the modern conflicts in the Middle East uh, stem around religion more than they do historic territory. So for example, when it comes to Israel and the Palestinians, there are some land disputes between the two of them, but there's an even deeper dispute over uh, the existence of Israel as a nation fundamentally. Right. And whether it's Palestinians, whether it's Iran, whether it's different terrorist groups around that area in Syria and Lebanon, Israel and all of the surrounding areas are fundamentally misaligned on the concept of religion. Right. So Muslim countries, Iran is a great example, will not acknowledge Israel as being a sovereign nation, and they have it as one of their explicit goals to eliminate Israel from the map. Right. So for us to pretend like this is just a dispute in the way that we think of disputes over territory or land or legal action, and Yehuda talked about this a little bit last week, our, our best outcome is a compromise. Whereas a lot of times what they're thinking is in terms of, of religion, and, and there's no middle ground. It's right. either this is... Allah's territory, this is territory for Muslims, or this is territory for Jews. And there's really no getting around that. Mm -hmm. So for us, I think we need to put ourselves in the mindset of religion undergirds a a lot of the struggle in the Middle East. I think Christians traditionally have sided with Israel for a lot of reasons. One of those being there's a closer kinship between Christianity and Judaism than there is between Christianity and Islam. Right. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, Certainly, Jesus being born into, uh, as a Jew, as the Messiah, and seeing the connection between the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, and Jesus as the fulfillment of that, and then the New Testament, there's a certain kinship there, not necessarily in the sense of, well, Jews and Christians are going to heaven and not every, and no one else is. I don't mean it in that sense. I just mean that Jesus came, as he said, to fulfill the law. He came in a redemptive plan that includes the Old Testament. Muhammad and the Quran come along over 600 years after the time of Jesus. And so there's not that kinship 
that is felt there. There's not that sense by Christians that Islam is any part of God's redemptive story. And so it seems mm-hmm. like there is a, a natural... Now, again, Christians do not think that Jews uh, have no need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Nevertheless, they understand that Jesus came out of that redemptive plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that's the first thing that we have to recognize about Christians and Jews. I want to go back to something that you just said, because I don't know how much of a given this is. There does seem to be a a little bit of confusion over whether or not the Jews have a special place as God's people, even for Christians. So whether this is uh, some kind of really hyper-dispensationalism or just a cultural belief that's kind of made its way into Christianity. Some people are arguing that the United States and Christians, these are these are probably the people that link Christianity and the United States in the same way, that Israel and the Jewish people have this bond because they are both in some way more connected to God than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And I think as Christians, one of the things that we need to clarify right off the bat is we actually don't have a biblical or an inherent duty to support the state of Israel because of salvation, because of Jesus Christ. There, there's, there's actually nothing about that that forces us to support Israel as a state. Right. Now, I I think in mainline, what I call mainline Christianity, I realize that's an opinion, but in mainline Christianity, I think what you said is absolutely right. There may be a kinship in some sense there, but there is no obligation toward it. Now, there is a dispensational uh, view of the scriptures that's gained popularity in the last hundred years or so, and it sees that God's promises to Israel are not finished. And so that movement amongst Christians would see a closer bond and would see a need to support Israel politically because God is not finished with Israel yet and that Israel will have a thousand-year reign with Christ. Now, let me be fair. They do also believe that Jews need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but that that will happen during that time. And so some groups of Christians do have uh, a feeling that we need to support Israel politically. I think that most Protestant Christians do not necessarily feel that way, that there is a, a religious reason to support Israel. I think there's a kinship And then, frankly, from a political point of view, I think you have Israel strikes us as the underdog. All her neighbors tried to destroy her. Americans don't like that. We like fighting for the underdog. And Israel is a democracy in the middle of a group of nations that uh, are not. And Americans like that. They like freedom. They like self-determination. So I think there are some other reasons that Americans support them and American Christians support them. But I would agree with you. There's no particularly biblical reason that politically we should support Israel. Yeah, before we move on to the political reasons, just to wrap up some of the, the biblical and theological points that you just mentioned, it's it's problematic on a lot of levels to believe that the Jewish people still have an independent relationship with God that will guarantee special treatment in insofar as it fulfills Old Testament promises in the future. And I, I would say this is not a really common belief. I, like I said, I think some hyper-dispensationalists would believe this, but, but not by any means all dispensationalists. Right. But there is a camp of people who believe that the temple is going to be rebuilt, sacrifices are going to be reinstated, right. And then the Messiah is going to come back. Right. So in in that camp, it's really important that the Jews control Israel. In fact, if if you're in that camp, the current state of affairs in Israel is really not ideal. Right. Because the Muslims actually control the most important places, the Temple Mount being the, the place of the highest importance. Exactly. So in order for their eschatology to come to fruition, what needs to happen is the Jews need to 
retake the Temple Mount, destroy the mosques, rebuild the temple, and then go on with the Old Testament system. And then that is going to trigger uh, some things in the end times. For Christians, I think that's that's not a great way of reading scripture for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think you have to make a lot of leaps, even if you if you read some of those passages ultra literally. Right. And by literal there, I don't even mean taking the text at plain value. I think that's something we all try to do. I think reading the text uh, in ways that it was never meant to be read. I, I also think uh, ignoring large portions of the New Testament that talk about how Christ fulfilled the promises of God to Israel mm-hmm. in his life, death, resurrection, and then in his second coming. Right. But probably the thorniest problem that we encounter when we talk about that are the land-grant promises. Mm-hmm. So the, the question we need to answer is, is God done with the land-grant promises from the Old Testament? What's your thought on that? Well, that's a great point. Uh, contra the dispensationalist idea, I agree with you. I think God is finished with that. For example, uh, when you look at Revelation chapter 21, you see the new uh, Jerusalem coming down from heaven, the new heaven, the new earth, and however you, however you interpret that. You basically see a Jerusalem that doesn't have a temple. It says there is no temple there because God and the Lamb are its temple. Uh, go mm-hmm. back to the idea of the curtain of the temple being torn in two and the idea of God dwells in the Holy of Holies. And then with Christ, God is, quote, into the world. Ephesians 1.13, when we believed, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God inside us. And so Christian thinking moves away from the idea of a place and more to a spiritual temple being built for eternity. So I completely agree with you. And in fact, one of the things I teach when I'm in Israel, most Christians, when they go there, they'll see the traditional site of this happening or that happening, or Jesus was born here, he was crucified here, and they quickly realize, oh, that's just the traditional site. That's not entirely certain, sometimes not even likely, where that happened. And they Mm -hmm. become a little disillusioned. They say, why don't we know that? And I have two answers for that. One, the biggest reason is because we don't worship God in a place. Wherever two or three are gathered, Christ said, I am there in your midst. We don't worship at a place, in a place for Christ. And for 200 years, a little more, after Christianity started, it was against the law to be a Christian. So it's not like you could put up a sign and say, hey, Christians, come here and see where Jesus was born. But I also think that's God's providence, in a sense, to keep us from our desire to make a place holy instead of making a God holy. So for all those reasons, I completely agree with you. I think that we no longer are tied to a land or a place. We have a promised land that is is far greater than what God gave to the Jews. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think God was faithful to fulfill his promises both literally and spiritually, and then again, eschatologically to the Jews. I, I think the second half of Joshua is proof, it's painstaking proof that God gave them the land that he promised to give them. Right. And then secondly, that uh, the temple, God's presence, is a larger theme than the land. Right. So if you look at the at the major covenants and themes of the Bible, what God promises to Abraham is that he is going to be their God and they're going to be his people and he's going to bless the world through them. Right. Part of how he's going to do that is by giving them a land. Mm-hmm. And I think he does that. Then I think when they're disobedient, they go into exile, that doesn't nullify God's promise to Abraham that he's going to bless the world through them. I think we see that fulfilled in Christ where uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. He is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. Somehow, someway, every promise that God's ever made is going to come true through Christ, in Christ, because of Christ, and we can bank on that. Right. So if if your promise, if the answer to your promise doesn't include Christ as opening up the temple and beginning a sacrificial system again would necessarily omit Christ. Right. It's probably not the biblical explanation 
for what God has promised. That's Agreed. To me, that's just a good rule of thumb. Right. So if we don't have a theological reason for Christians to support Israel, we may have a kinship, we may have respect, we may have a common heritage in some ways, but if we don't have a direct theological reason to support the state of Israel, then we need to look elsewhere. And as you've mentioned, a good reason to support Israel would be political. Uh, In the region, Israel is almost the perfect ally for the United States in the Middle East. Right. One of the reasons being Israel is is democratic. The other other reason being uh, Israel is uh, an ally against radical Islam. Right. Yeah, it's interesting to see the dynamic change. Now, having said that, I, I would like our listeners to know that I don't think everything Israel does is right. I don't think you think everything Israel does is right. I think when you get into the international arena, it's hard to say you wholeheartedly support uh, any particular nation that every action they commit is right. But in general, mm-hmm. you you form allegiances in some sense, or you form support in some sense because of your overriding priorities. Israel is not an imperialistic nation. I mean, leaving aside the whole, quote, occupied West Bank, even if you thought that, Israel could have overcome Syria. In fact, it would solve a lot of their problems if they conquered Syria. Same with Jordan. And yet they do not. They want their homeland, but they do not want any other land. I think Americans appreciate that. It's far different than Vladimir Putin, who would like to reconstitute an ancient Russian empire by ruling over lands that that he could take. Israel wants this piece of land and that's it. There is no imperialistic movement on their part whatsoever. I also think with Israel, what you see is, I think Israel would like to live at peace with its neighbors and I would put the burden of proof on their neighbors. Anybody that lives next door to you and says, my ultimate goal is to destroy you, it's really hard to negotiate with that. Israel mm-hmm. has never failed to acknowledge the sovereignty of the nations around them. So I think that's another reason for American support. But you're right. Interesting change is you see Israel being more positively aligned. And I realize what you read in the press is, is a lot of times just rhetoric. But Egypt... Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and some of the other Sunni Muslim nations are far more worried about Shiite Iran and the Iran-Russian axis to conquer the Middle East than they are about Israel because they realize Israel has no territorial designs on Egypt. Iran has territorial designs on the entire Middle East. Well, and part of that is the way that we're talking about foreign policy right now has shifted from looking for countries who share some common goals but possess their own culture, their own moral code, their own vision Mm -hmm. of the world, and being okay with those kinds of alliances to when it's politically expedient nitpicking every single decision that a country makes and then deciding, and this is true on both sides of the aisle, and then deciding that we can't be allies with that country anymore. Right. In the world order, you don't get to pick every single thing that a country does when when you're looking to uh, have alliances across the world. Right. And so one of the reasons that Israel is a good ally is not because Israel's perfect. And in fact, Israel in some ways contributes to difficulties in the Middle East. But overall, Israel is aligned on a lot of the United States' goals in the Middle East. Right. And, and one of the things that's interesting, too, while, while we're on this topic, what we're seeing right now with the Trump administration is less about Democrats and Republicans, although that's how it gets spun when it comes to foreign policy, and more about two schools of thought on how to best negotiate with, uh, come to the table with the powers that be in the Middle East. Yes. So you had the Obama administration... And th- I, I honestly think this could be true if, if President Obama had been a Republican. I think this is just a way of viewing the world. This has more right. to do with his own personal vision than it does his party allegiance. He viewed the Middle East as a place where he could go in and negotiate, bring hostile parties to the table. And the locus that he chose to go about that was Iran. So for him... 
signature legislation that they worked tirelessly on was the Iran nuclear deal. If you can get Iran to sign on to uh, get rid of their nuclear enrichment program, if they could build a relationship with the United States, then maybe the rest of the Muslim world would come to the table as well. Right. That, that kind of was their plan in the Middle East. So the Trump administration looks at that and they say, there's no way that Iran is coming to the table to negotiate. They violated the contract that they signed. That was a bad decision. We actually think you can do a better job negotiating the Middle East around a different country, and that would be Saudi Arabia. Right. Now, each one of those has problems. If you negotiate with Iran, you have to deal with the really stunning human rights atrocities that are committed by Iran. And you have to deal terrorism. with the fact yeah. that terrorism that's being sponsored by Iran. You have to deal with the proxy wars that Iran is fighting in several places around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and now the Trump administration has decided, and, and this is probably more historically the case with the United States and with our presidents, that Saudi Arabia would be a good ally. Well, now all of a sudden you've got to deal with the things like the Khashoggi murder. And that the human rights. Looks like it's abuses there. I mean, they are not a liberal yeah. Western democracy, and consequently, we will have many things to criticize about Saudi Arabia. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think the, I think the answer there is not to say, oh, well, because they're our ally, we're going to overlook this. Right. I think the answer is to say which one of these countries is actually going to be best in the long run to bring about peace and the goals of the United States in the Middle East. And one of the things I think works on the surface is Saudi Arabia and Israel are much more compatible allies than Israel and Iran. That is true. And I, one of the reasons I think the Obama administration gets a bad rap for the way they treated Israel is, number one, because of the way they treated Israel, but secondly, because <laughs> of the way that they brought Iran to the table when one of Iran's explicit goals is to not acknowledge Israel's existence. Right. Yeah, on the one hand... If you saw that policy and you saw Iran as the key to the Middle East, then you would look on that policy as enlightened. On the other hand, if you look at it from what I would call real politic, you would look at that as naive and realize that uh, Iran was unlikely to give up its radical goals because of entry into the, quote, normal international circle. I really think some of this goes back to a Christian point of view, and I think Christians are the ultimate realists in the sense that we believe in fallen world, we believe in fallen humanity, we don't believe people are basically good, we believe that we are all bent towards sin. Christians don't have a problem with the Ayatollahs in Iran wanting to conquer the world, or with Vladimir Putin wanting to reconstitute his empire or with uh, Kim Jong-un wanting to have nuclear powers and extend his abilities, or China wanting to reinstate their ancient hegemony over the uh, worlds of Asia. We don't have a problem with that. In fact, we expect fallen humanity to act that way. I think if you hold the other point of view, which I think was uh, really characteristic of the Obama administration, and again, it's just a different worldview, as you said, that people are basically good, and if they're brought into the family of nations, they'll begin to behave. I think Christians uh, don't really have a problem with that because we expect people to be sinful. Yeah, I think that's the fundamental distinction is these come, these come down to worldview concepts that influence the way the public policy is shaped and the way that foreign policy is shaped. Right. Well, let me ask you a question before we end, though. I, I wanted to get your opinion on this. So in the United States today, there have been uh, a number of you know media reports about anti-Semitism coming to the fore, and the defense by Ilan Omar and some of uh, others have been, we're not anti-Semitic, we just don't support Israel. How do you see the difference between those two things, Cole? Well, this is a really interesting development, and I, I think the United States is, is dealing with a problem that the UK has been dealing with for several months now, and that is, what does it actually mean to be anti-Semitic? Right. So there, I, I do think there is a distinction between being anti-Semitic and being anti-Israel the country. 
Right. Now, that that is a really difficult line to walk, but I, I do think we can say that someone may be opposed to certain things that Israel does and not be anti-Semitic. Now, it's obviously possible to be anti-Israel and anti-Semitic, which is where I think some of this vitriol is coming from. I think especially when we're talking about the tweets and the comments and uh, the reactions from the two two primary congresswomen that, that have been in the spotlight, mm-hmm. Omar and Taleb, First of all, Rashida Taleb is Palestinian. And right. so I, I think, I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say she probably is anti the state of Israel in some ways. I think that's, she probably would like for Israel to give the land back. She would probably like for uh, this, the map to look very different over there. In that situation, she, she certainly would be anti Israel. The question would be is she anti Semitic? And I think this is where we have to come back and say it's less about where these two women are from in the world. I think it's a great thing in the United States that you can be yeah, born somewhere else. Absolutely. You can bring a different culture. I think it was great when when Congress uh, reversed the law that you can't wear a head covering. I mean, I think all of that is great from a cultural perspective. I think what's most important here is the difference of religion and the way that that plays out in the discussion of, of the Jews and of the state of Israel. So Taleb, for example, had a tweet from 2012 that, that said something along the lines of, uh, she's praying for Israel to be weakened and that Allah would remove them from their land. So that's the kind of thing you read and you say, that's probably anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. w- wanting people, especially in conversations that have been circling in the media about the Palestinians, a lot of that is based around dislocation from their land, refugee crises, you know, all of that, to then have something on your Twitter profile that you've defended several times saying that you wish that upon another people. It shouldn't be surprising then that you get accused of anti-Semitism. Right. Well, and I want to draw a connection between a couple of things here because I want to underscore what you said is it's a thin line. Take you back to when Donald Trump imposed a travel ban from some Muslim countries. And I realize this kind of got out of hand, and it became known, though, as anti-Muslim bias. In fact, what he did, now, if you think he's racist or Islamophobic, that's fine. That's not my point. But if you just look at the historical facts, he basically barred travel from select Muslim countries. And that was perceived as Islamophobia. Let me fast forward to now. You have a boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel, BDS movement, that's gaining ground. And it basically says we will boycott and we will sanction Israel until they do what we want to do. I don't see much moral difference in those two things. If one of those was Islamophobia, then the other has to be anti-Semitism. If the BDS movement is simply anti-Israel, then why wasn't the Donald Trump travel ban simply anti-567, actually I believe it was nine countries. And so I don't think there's an equality of moral judgment in this thing, and I think it brings out our biases. And when you start to see biases, you start to see things like Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. Yeah, part of the problem is I think there's been discrimination against all of these groups of people. Right. And once that's gone on and once that's happened, things really get confusing. I th- one of the things I, I want to point out that is is the wrong thing to do, and I, and I want to land at a place where we talk about maybe what the right thing for us to do is, but uh-huh. one of the things that's the wrong thing to do is to justify discrimination by saying that someone had been discriminated against and therefore what they say cannot be discriminatory. Right. That's been a defense that some of the Democratic leaders have made. Um, that, right. That's really not a good argument. So just because <laughs> no. we have different groups of people who have been discriminated against, the goal should always be, no matter who you are, but especially for Christians, the goal for us should not be to fight discrimination with discrimination. Right. The goal should be for us to end discrimination. That should be our goal. Discrimination of every kind. And and by that we mean treating somebody in a worse way, uh, writing somebody off, barring opportunity, 
any of those things because of something like where someone was born, their skin color, you, in any of those things, that would be what I mean by discrimination because that's a word that's, that, that has actually migrated quite a bit in, in meaning. But as Christians, we really want to bring the end of discrimination against everyone. And to do that, we need to be clear about how foreign policy and discrimination go together. So for the travel ban, that, that's a great example. Now, it may be that Donald Trump is, is discriminating against Muslims. That may be the case. He may, he may be an Islamophobe. In the travel ban, however, and the, and the Supreme Court ruled this, what he did was take Obama-era rules about what it means for your country to have access for your people to come to the United States. And if you don't abide by these rules, then your people can't come here. And that's a law that hadn't been being enforced. President Trump decides to enforce it. That's a foreign policy issue that got interpreted as a race issue. Right. With the uh, BDS, again... It's possible for that to be a foreign policy issue. Right. But it's also pol- it's also possible for it to be an anti-Semitic issue. Exactly. And what I think we've seen in, in Europe that it would be wise for us to listen to is the Labor Party basically started out talking about foreign policy issues. Right. Then the United Nations brings forth a definition for what anti-Semitism means, and Jeremy Corbyn and uh, his supporters won't clarify what anti-Semitism actually is. Right. That led people to say, okay, maybe there's more going on here than just foreign policy problems. Maybe we're dealing with a problem of anti-Semitism. Where I, where I want us to be careful in the United States is I think we should be able to have conversations about what you think we should do with Israel, but right. I don't think we should be able to uh, advance. I don't think we should be able to campaign on a hatred for the people who occupy that country, and for the people who live in this country who are Jewish. Right. I completely agree. And, you know, just to be blunt about how should we approach it, I mean, here's how I think about this. On, I completely agree with what you said. As, as political animals, as citizens of our country, we want to advocate for justice, and I think justice means that we should have the same basic rights, regardless of the color of your skin or where you were born. As a Christian, I will simply say what Jesus said. Unless you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, you are destined for destruction. Consequently, I think we put, if we put as much effort into spreading the good news of the gospel as we did of spreading our particular political views, I think we would do more good for the kingdom, because everybody we meet, including ourselves before uh, Christ chose us for salvation, everybody we meet is under a death sentence. And that makes the, that's the ultimate leveler of humanity. And the mm-hmm. ultimate openness is that anyone can become a child of God. In other words, Jesus Christ is open to anyone who wants to become a child of God. We just simply uh, have to surrender to him and repent. So my point is, is that Christianity is the least exclusive of all these ideologies that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. I think that's an important thing to remember when we're talking about anti-Semitism, when we're talking about these congresswomen and whether or not you like their policies, whether or not you like what they've said. At the root of all of this is a religious issue. Mm-hmm. All of this is a religious issue. Now, that's not to say that you know, if you're a Christian, you have a monolithic political platform. But it is to say that we operate as human beings primarily because of what we believe. Deep right. down, our worldview, the way that we see humanity, the way that we see our greatest need, the way that we see the end of all of, all of this, what we think is going to happen at the end— is going to determine everything about how we behave, how we argue, how we envision the future. And it's foolish for us to think that that religion doesn't play a role in what's going on politically in our country right now. Exactly. Again, there's there's some nuance we need to remember there. Uh, you know, not every not every Christian has to be I- I- exactly the same when it comes to political issues. But I will say one of the things that's going to be interesting over the next 10, 15 years is 
with the insurgence of pluralism culture-wide uh, and, and the ability now of both non-white and non-Christian people to be elected to um, national office, we're going to have to deal with the fact that people actually believe really different things. Right. The age of pretending that everybody kind of can get on the same page and believe the same things is over. Right. And it, it's not the Christians that brought that about. It's the diversity movement that's actually going to bring the clarity to that. So while uh, whereas six months ago uh, you had the big wave of diversity in Congress, and that was supposed to be a real uniting, awesome thing, it, it may be that. But it's also going to be something that clarifies the fact that different people believe different things, and those things are not compatible with each other. That's exactly So we're going to have to make some decisions in the public square as to who gets to legislate, who gets to say what, who gets to be in power. That's going to be something to keep an eye on for the next decade. I agree. Every I've said before, every law, don't kid yourself that they're neutral. Every law enacts someone's values someone's religion, even if that's the religion of secular humanism. Every law enacts someone's values. And so it's not a morally neutral space. And the idea of separation of church and state, religion and the secular world, is a false dichotomy because there is no person, certainly no Christian, let me put it this way, no Christian can split down inside their heart and say, this part of me is for Christ, and this part of me is not. It's simply not possible. I think when we take our Christ into the public square, we take the best of us into the public square, and I think we take the only hope of healing for this world. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.